0: Today is Julia Rudolph, who is a legal historian and a dear friend, and she has been kind enough to come and talk to two law professors and, by extension, their students. Despite our utter lack of expertise on the matters that we're going to ask her questions on. So welcome Julia and apologies in advance for our level of knowledge, which is not even at the level of knowledge that my historian friends tend to make fun of as, uh, I think they use the word law office history and they don't mean it uh, as a compliment. But we're so thrilled to have you And um, let me just ask our very first question. Mark and I are starting our sovereign debt class in a couple of days at Duke and it's already started at UNC. And one of the projects that we're having the students work on is the Haitian independence debt of 1825. And we have been intrigued by this debt in part because the sovereign debt literature has almost no discussion of it. And we're also intrigued because it seems on the face, such an incredibly unjust uh, imposition of a debt by an imperial power on a little colony. And the question that lawyers naturally ask is, well, given that it's so unjust, maybe we can figure out some way to uh, turn the tables. But given that I especially know none of this history, uh, I thought it might just might be helpful to learn some. And so, Julia, if if you wouldn't (laughs) mind giving us the most basics of, what this independence debt is, and how to think about it in context, and um, if you also have uh, uh, criticisms of how lawyers do history, we're willing to take
1: them. <laughs> Thank you. Me too. Um, I'm very happy to be here, and I, I'm sure you're not giving yourself enough credit for what you what you do understand. Um, but now I'm happy. I'm happy to talk a little bit about it with you. And I, I'm also I'm no expert in Haitian history, as you know. Um, or even in Atlantic history, um, but uh, I do know a bit about this uh, set of events and about this uh, period. So I can, I can talk a little bit about that. Um, and, and I know you want me to just sort of give a brief overview. There are a lot of different ways to approach talking about what happened, right? Um, so we could talk from Atlantic and Caribbean history, uh, French and European history, uh, economic and social history, political and legal history, right? There are lots of different ways to approach it. Um, I want to take a first stab from the perspective of French and European political history since I know something about that and I'll give a very, very simplified outline to get us started. Um, so you know that Haiti declared its independence in 1804 and this is sort of the mid-beginning period of Napoleonic rule in France in Europe. Uh, Napoleon seized power from the final revolutionary governments in 1799. Um, Now 1804 independence in Haiti followed on from the successful slave revolt in Saint-Domingue that took place um, in the early years of the French Revolution so uh, 1791 to 93 Um, so soon after the declaration of the rights of man and citizen, um, the period of the development of a French constitution. And by 1794, French Revolutionary, uh, the French Revolutionary Assembly had abolished slavery in the French colonies. And in Saint-Domingue, uh, the leaders of the revolt uh, had started to take over a colonial administration um, and they began to work on their own constitutions and principles of governance. Now, um, when Napoleon came to power, he did try to retake control over Saint-Domingue starting uh, 1802. Um, And he tried to restore slavery there as he did in the other French colonies. So uh, Guadeloupe-Martinique slavery was reestablished. But uh, this wasn't accomplished in Saint-Domingue. So Napoleonic forces were defeated uh, in Saint-Domingue. Although famously Napoleon's armies captured the famous leader Toussaint Louverture and he was imprisoned and tortured. He died in a French prison. But in 1804, the same year that Napoleon was crowned emperor of France, uh, leaders in Saint-Domingue who had defeated those Napoleonic armies proclaimed the independence of Haiti. Now, again, just from the perspective of French politics, um, after the the defeat of Napoleonic empire, uh, which is about a decade later, 1814, 1815, you now have the restoration of Bourbon monarchy in France. And now the question of recognizing Haiti's independence is intensified Um, and uh, the question of the status of Haiti is regarded by some people as unresolved and this is a period that some historians of Europe describe as a time of conservative or reactionary politics Um, and in France you have the return of aristocrats who had been exiled during the revolution And you also have the presence of so-called planter refugees who wanted to restore colonial power in Haiti along with restoring monarchy. Uh, So these planters engaged in lobbying, Uh, they they made claims for that compensation, right? That their property had been confiscated, their wealth had been appropriated and they should be compensated. Um, And this was a political campaign but it was also a press campaign. And there was talk about reconquest, redevelopment, re-enslavement. Um, And you have, over the next decade, these kinds of debates um, and negotiations within France and also between French and Haitian leaders. And finally, finally, what happens in 1825 is that the French government, now headed by this Bourbon King, Charles X, agrees to recognize Haitian independence on two conditions. First, that France would get favorable trade deals with Haiti. And second, that Haiti would be responsible for indemnity payments to France of 150 million francs. And this was an enormous sum. Um, And uh, of course, these final terms were negotiated with an open display of French force. So it wasn't just a vague threat of reconquest, but you have French gunboats in the Haitian harbors to back up uh, this negotiation.
2: And Julia, can you talk a little bit more about the push towards reconquest. So me too, I would I would like to chastise me too for saying, um, we're too ignorant about the subject matter, but I, I can't he's he's um he's completely right about that. But given the the limited knowledge that I have, my sense is that the the reconquest was, not a primary French objective. Is that a, a and was even um, something that was um, was certainly threatened, and the French were prepared to do great harm to from using gunboats and with bombardment and so forth. But can you talk a little more about the idea of reconquest and how seriously it was taken even by the the planter class who who were pushing for it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really interesting question um, and obviously it's tied to this, this claim about compensation, right? So that maybe it's, it's um, more of a threat, but I guess I look at it or I look at the whole set of events um, as an issue of international and imperial competition, right? So the struggle um, involved France, but also other powers in the Caribbean like Britain and like Spain. Um, and so I don't think the, the question of reconquest or of French empire was, was not important, right? Um, so from, from uh, two ways I would think about that. First, uh, there was, I think, lingering fear. From the beginning, there was fear that this revolt in Haiti was going to provide an example to other enslaved populations in the Caribbean. Um, So in in British Jamaica, and there had already been an important slave revolt there in 1760 um, or in in Cuba. Um, But there was also hope from the perspective of other European powers that they had an opportunity here, right, that they could undermine France. Um, they can encourage insurrection or by promoting Haiti, doing business Haiti, even before they recognized uh, uh, Haitian independence, um, or by um, taking the place of, of the French colony, so, so uh, Cuba becomes the major sugar producer in the Caribbean. So. I think the French were engaged in this kind of imperial competition. They were interested certainly in preserving their, their power, maybe shifting the orientation of their empire, but, but they weren't giving up on empire. Um, and I know some historians have done work um, uh, trying to look at the way in which um, France was trying to expand its commercial empire um, uh, in this period. So Julia, can I ask um, about the
0: connection here to, the Louisiana Purchase. My um, sort of worse than law office history is that the Haitian Revolution and maybe the French Revolution resulted in France sort of backing off from the Americas at least and maybe notions of liberty and equality and got the french to back off a little bit from the imperialist project although history tells us otherwise i guess Uh, but louisiana purchase seems to be quite connected to what we see happen with haiti is is that um roughly in the ballpark
1: so um Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> I mean, I think the simplest answer is yes. I mean, I think, I think my understanding is that um, the events in Saint-Domingue were an important catalyst for the Louisiana Purchase, right? Um, and that uh, it was uh, persuasive to Napoleon that, that this was uh, he, he couldn't continue to sort of push um, uh, in uh, Louisiana, right? And that this was a way um, to exit. Um, do you want to pursue that question of the broader? revolutionary goals? Because there again, I think timing matters um, and that sort of gets into a big debate about Napoleon, you know, uh, Napoleon pro or con. Was he was he fulfilling the principles of the French Revolution or was he violating the principles of the French? So th-
0: I think this is, this is um, you are taking us down the right path. And I, I want to ask now the question where the rubber meets the road in a sense, uh, which is, We've discussed before that in 2004, there was an attempt to bring a lawsuit against the French government by an American law firm on behalf of uh, President Aristide of Haiti at that time. Mm -hmm. And the lawsuit never gets filed, so we don't have access to what arguments were made. But reading the secondary sources, you know, as law professors, we only read secondary sources. Primary sources are, you know, we don't believe in those. Uh, (laughs) That's not true. (laughs) The Secondary sources suggest to us that the claim was being made that under French law at the time of the revolution, there was no slavery. And so at least, in 1804, slavery had been abolished in France and in the colonies. So therefore it was actually illegal under French law to charge Haiti for the slaves. And I'm curious about two questions. One, my sense is that's an oversimplification of history especially if we go all the way forward to Charles uh, the Tenth in Uh, 1825, Uh, so maybe the French decided slavery is good again for the colonies, Uh, but I'm also curious as to whether during the French Revolution when they abolished slavery or post-French Revolution, the, the, the lords and ladies, did they get compensation for their slaves in France? Sorry, there was a lot there.
1: Yeah, um, let's, let's start with the question that I think you've come back to a couple of times with me about whether slavery was legal um, in, in France this time. Um, and one of the things I said a couple of minutes ago was um, you know, that sort of changed at different times um, and that in the French colonies um, under Napoleonic rule, uh, slavery was made legal, again, in some of the French colonies, not in Saint-Domingue, but in other French colonies. Um, one, of, one of the things to think about um, in terms of French understanding of French and, and European attitudes towards slavery um, really has to do with a, a question of jurisdiction. Right. I think this was really significant in attitudes towards slavery. So there was, there was a common understanding, a common argument made that slavery could be legal in the colonies, but not in France. Right, It could be legal in some places or at some times, but not in others, Right, and there was a lot of attention to the history of uh, slavery. Um, and there was also some understanding that even in jurisdictions where slavery was allowed, uh, the scope of lawful authority could differ. Um, And so my prime example of that actually doesn't come from France, it comes from uh, Britain, since that's my area of expertise. But you know, the famous Somerset case, uh, 1772, um, where Somerset, uh, James Somerset challenges uh, uh, his enslavement by his master Stuart. Um, And the debates had a lot to do with this question of jurisdiction and the ruling. Although the although the popular idea was the ruling uh, in Somerset ended slavery, it made slavery illegal in England. It was actually much more narrow than that, you know. Um, and Mansfield's ruling um, said, uh, you know, slavery could be legal in the colonies, could be legal in I think it was Virginia, where Stuart wanted to um, send Somerset back to be sold. Um, and he didn't actually say anything about it being legal in England, but he said, uh, so high an act of dominion of the master steward over Somerset is not recognized by English law. So, so Somerset has to be released, it was a habeas claim. So, so there was a lot of attention to this question of jurisdiction when and where slavery could be, ex- uh, could be legal, could be exercised. Um, in terms of, of uh, France um, and Haiti, um, I think historians have paid a lot of attention to this question of jurisdiction and sort of legal pluralism. Uh, Lauren Benton is one historian who wrote a lot about that. And also uh, I'll wrap up, um, continuities between slavery and freedom. Um, and there, um, I think I've recommended to you uh, Rebecca Scott's work and also uh, Malik Gockham's work. Um, they've done uh, really great uh, work talking about this.
2: So Me Too's question, um... So frames a broader one that I had wanted to ask, and maybe I'm gonna defer that one until after our break, which we'll take in just a second. So so let me ask a, a somewhat narrower follow on question. Can you talk a little bit about the, sorry, my sense is that the various European powers with an interest in Haiti were viewing promises of emancipation kind of street strategically with regards to each other, that is the, the Spanish were promising limited emancipation, I guess maybe just to people, uh, slaves who were willing to fight on their behalf, and the British were making a, a different kind of promise, and the French were um, the ones who at least eventually wound up promising Uh, something approximating widespread emancipation. First of all, can you fill in some of those details and then give a little of the context there?
1: Yeah, Mark, that kind of goes back to my earlier response to you Um, and again, I think you're absolutely right that there was this, this sort of jockeying and this sort of competition. Um, and even, even um, during the revolt itself in the 1790s, um, British and Spanish uh, you know, made deals and tried to uh, uh, encourage um, or to, or to uh, influence uh, the course of events. Um, and yes, I think this continues on into this period of negotiation over um, recognition of independence, um, and I'll say I'll say um, two two things about that. And again, maybe we can take this up again after the break. But one is, I think, um, from my point of view, what I'm interested in. Um, I like to think about this in terms of. Uh, sort of the broader history of diplomatic relations, right? And sort of um, how do you recognize a move from colony to state, which is an important part of uh, the longer history of revolution in this period, right? Um, And also, again, um, just from my area of expertise, um, other, other empires were facing these questions. And earlier when I gave you my, my quick overview of you know, what happened, um, I think in part, I emphasize the role of those lobbyists in France um, because I do think about this in comparison to what was going on in Britain. And it's just a few years later, so it's in 1833 that the British parliament um, uh, abolishes slavery in the British Caribbean. The slave trade had been abolished in 1807, but emancipation doesn't happen until 1833. And there, the negotiations were very much shaped by what was known as the West Indian lobby, and they they extracted conditions as well. Um, So the first was that you have apprenticeship, there's a system of apprenticeship that follows slavery. So these newly freed people um, are not fully emancipated. They're tied to continued fixed terms of unfree labor. Um, And second, there's compensation. So British slave owners are compensated and there the amount is 20 million pounds. um, That's to be paid to the British state to compensate um, slave owners. So it's funded in a different way, right? Um, uh, But these are uh, live questions for the British empire um, as well.
2: Well, thank you. Let's take a short break and then pick up uh, where we left off in just a couple of minutes. So as we start the, the second half, Julia, I'm wondering if you would field a broader question, which is is something like this. What do you think of the attempt to as, as a legal historian, what do you think of the attempt to sort of express these kinds of historical grievances in the language of legal claiming? Uh, you know the, as I think about this, you know, there's one sort of universe where there's a valid legal claim and a mechanism for enforcing it in the way that we uh, that we lawyers tend to think of. And, and that's not really the scenario here and there's another universe where by asserting a legal claim you gain sort of access to a, a forum for talking about and hopefully resolving um broader disputes and maybe that's you know that the kind of merit of the claim is less relevant than just the access to that forum and that process and, and i think You know, there have been some notable examples of that where um, maybe some of the the litigation by Holocaust survivors and their their descendants against like Swiss banks, for example, falls in that latter category. We have some plausible legal claims, but really what winds up happening is a negotiation overseen by a, a fairly active judge. Neither of those seems like the right, like a plausible outcome here. So as a legal historian, what do you think about the effort to kind of convert historical injustices like this into the language of formal legal claims?
1: Yeah, that's of course a really interesting question. Um, And I think a really important question. Um, And you, you pointed to, I mean, I think there has been and there continues to be important work um, of trying to convert historical injustices into legal claims. Um, And and what I was talking about um, a couple of minutes ago in terms of uh, the British compensation um, in 1833, there's actually been a lot of work and there's a, a great set of people at UCL who have been working on the legacies of uh, these slave trade compensation, um, trying to look at the ways in which uh, they had an impact on 19th century um, and beyond uh, economic and political growth in Britain. So uh, tracing ties uh, to corporations, uh, to families, um, and uh, now to the crown, right? So I, I, think, I think this is valid. I think it's really important. And, and historians have to play a role in this, right? Um, historians aren't chroniclers, they make arguments. Uh, they, they make judgments. Um, so, so I think it's part of the reckoning, but you put, but you put your finger just on the question of, but does that make a legal claim? And here I think historians do, do have to be careful. You know, there's no sort of simple translation into a legal claim, just as there's no simple claim about causality, right? Saying this caused that. Um, and so, uh, slavery was illegal. And so, the debt was unlawful, that's one way in which you posed it to me. Um, I think think the contingency that we have to appreciate, the complexity um, uh, is where historians um, can come in and maybe me too, that's where you you get the criticisms of law office history because uh, that tends to be that kind of more uh, simple or or simplified uh, kind of approach.
0: So um, Julia, this this is fascinating. And if even if the use of historical argument in litigation context is uh, frustrating, even to somebody like me who is a lawyer and is used to simplifying history, then uh, to somebody like you, it it just must be uh, just beyond uh, noxious in terms of how uh, manipulative
1: and inaccurate it is, but it, I'm gonna continue to go down that path. Uh, no, but I think, I think it's important. I, I wouldn't say um, it's noxious at all. Um, it, it's just that I, I guess part of it would be um, that the claims, and, and Mark, I think this is where you were going, the claims are moral and economic, political as much as they're legal, right? So So the historical record can inform Um, all those aspects of those kinds of claims.
0: Yeah, it's just, once you you delve into context, everything becomes murkier, especially when you're talking about the context from multiple centuries ago and we know so little and every every time we even talk to our students, it just gets murky so quickly But I want to ask you uh, about more history uh, in this context, uh, murky though it may be. Uh, So if I boil down to what what I think actually happened now from my reading of a lot of the history that uh, you had pointed us to and uh, other stuff that uh, Mark pointed me to, it seems like while the the French articulated the indemnification in terms of uh, compensation for the slaves, in actuality, a significant portion of it was payment to France in exchange for France recognizing Haiti as a nation that could uh, do commerce uh, with other nations. And this uh, struck me as very surprising because from a contemporary perspective, it seems outrageous that you would charge another nation in exchange for recognizing them. Now, I've, I've read enough CIA, MI5, spy stories to know that you know the powerful nations always cut deals about whether they'll recognize a new government or not. But I've never seen this idea of charging money for recognition and I'd I'd love to know if if you uh, have a historical sense of maybe uh, from the 18th century, uh, your area of expertise, this idea of recognition uh, comes up and whether there are any instances of nations uh, charging money in exchange for recognition?
1: Yeah, I don't think I can come up with another uh, clear example or such a clear Uh, trade, right, but you pay us, we recognize you. But the question of recognition of a state certainly is something that was seen before and that that the actors in this uh, set of events would have been thinking of, would have been aware of. So just the fact uh, of the French revolutionary, the French revolutionary governments Uh, would they be recognized as legitimate, as powers on the European stage? Um, And, you know, there there are lots of changes in the nature of the revolutionary governments themselves. Um, So the question of uh, recognition of the state um, was uh, certainly uh, alive and important. Um, And the other one, again, that I think of um, was from an earlier revolution in, in the British Isles, Right. So in the mid 17th century, you have uh, the Commonwealth period, you have uh, the abolition of monarchy and the establishment of a republic for a time. And, and uh, the European powers didn't come forward to recognize um, the the uh, English Republic uh, Cromwell. Right. Would he be recognized by other powers? So the so the question of. Um, recognition, and as I, as I intimated before, uh, sort of part of the broader history of uh, diplomacy and uh, diplomatic relations um, is certainly important. 1776 uh, is another example, and there I would say um, uh, Americans making claims, declaring independence, and saying we are now no longer colonies, we are uh, states. Um, had this uh, uh, earlier British history in mind. It's also an issue and, and the Haitian Revolution is very much a part of it, um, of these Atlantic revolutions uh, continuing into the 19th century. Um, and I suggested to you their um, uh, friend and colleague, David Armitage has written a lot of important, interesting stuff on this uh, declarations of independence and also on developments in international law so the foundations of some of these concepts of recognition um, and developments in diplomatic history
2: and i'm sorry to ask for more context julia but i i i um, find myself sort of constantly realizing my lack of it can you so my sense is that um if memory serves american recognition of haiti was delayed until after the onset of the of the Civil War but that for um, for reasons having to do with European politics the British were withholding recognition but granted it fairly quickly after the French and I'm wondering if you can just say a little bit about that, um, that window, and also about the sort of link between recognition and the ability to do trade with with um, foreign countries.
1: So I'm afraid I don't know that much about uh, the chronology of recognition. So that I'm going to have to leave you to do your own um, your own research. And I'm sorry. Oh, darn I'm Sorry to leave you. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, to leave you hanging like that. Um, sorry. Now, now that you came in, I forgot what the other aspect of your question was, though.
2: Well, and so maybe we can. We should move on from this. I, my, um, my sense was that the French refusal to grant recognition was, um, sort of acting, uh, having this gating function. Uh, oh, closed- right. And in terms of
1: commercial, yeah, commercial right. activities and being recognized. Um. Well, there, I mean, one of the things that I find interesting um, is the scope of, of, quote, unquote, illegal trade, right? Um, and so that even though there were, there were barriers, um, and again, that, that historian um, I mentioned, um, what's her name? Uh, Lewis, Mary Lewis, I think mm-hmm. she's at Harvard, um, has been doing uh, work in this, looking at um, uh, even uh, French and uh, Haitian activities and the continued illegal slave trade um, in the early and mid 19th century. So, so there were barriers um, to commerce without formal recognition, but I think there was lots of uh, you know, smuggling, different kinds of commerce that still took place.
0: So Julia, I'm gonna ask a question that um, came from reading some of our mutual friend, Rebecca Scott's work uh, that that is so fascinating. So I'm I'm so glad you reminded me to go back to Rebecca's work. And one of the articles that Rebecca has uh, from that period talks about this idea, this common law doctrine from that period of time from the 18th century of prescription. Uh, and Mark is going to be uh, uh, sh- uh, shocked, I think um, because he and I have been working about, uh, working on what this prescription notion means in modern contracts. But Rebecca has a whole article about prescription and slavery and this notion that since slaves were considered property, if the slave was free for some period of time, then they were free. Like it was like a version of adverse possession, I guess, or uh, uh, some kind of uh, easement that you have. And of course, given the uh, revolution in 1804, and then uh, the French um, coming back in 1825, Uh, to try to threaten re-enslavement. Of course, I think about prescription, but does this uh, strike you as just uh, making connections where there aren't any, or are you familiar with these notions of prescription from that period? Apparently it was important, but I'm just uh, grasping at straws.
1: No, I I I think it is important. The question, I guess, for me is, Um, where it would or could be recognized. Um, And so the claim that I have been recognized for this period of time as free um, might have some purchase, but it's not clear that it that It would, and maybe you could think about it going back to my point earlier that um, slavery was considered legal in the French colonies at this point, then it was deemed illegal, then it was deemed legal again in some places. Um, And and so uh, when and where you are at any given moment um, really matters. And and there, Rebecca um, Scott has written yeah, I agree with you, I love her work and she's written very interestingly, not only about this question of time and where you are in the timeline of slavery, but also place. Um, and she's written a lot about the importance, not only of time, but of documents. She has that article, Paper Thin, um, where you, know, you can have a document um, uh, speaking to manumission, um, but uh, if that document isn't recognized, as authoritative, uh, when you when you appear in New Orleans coming from Haiti, I think that's one example. She has uh, one woman um, with that example. Um, then what good does it do you, right? Um, so you can have prescription, you can have paper, um, but it it doesn't always translate into a legal claim.
2: Well, Julia, thank you so much for for giving us. Um, Uh, so much of your time we've i i know uh, i think i can speak for me too um this has been extraordinarily helpful for us and um maybe when we educate ourselves slightly more we'll be able to persuade you to come back come back again (laughs) but thank you thank you so much it's been great talking to you